Okay. So t take us now um, from these conversations with your state president to the to the tr to the court and the trial. Well, we had several conversations with him. One I remember I talked about alone, and in that one he was complaining about how I didn't obey the prophet. And I said, well, you don't obey the prophet either. And he said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, you've got an elk's head here on the wall. President Kimball said, you shouldn't shoot the little birds. This is much bigger than a bird, and you shot it. He said, well, that's not controversial now. I said, it is for the elk. <laughs> There's a certain element in hypocrisy in this because he's enforcing rules he agrees with. He doesn't enforce the rules he doesn't agree with. And that's what they claim about me, but that wasn't true. I was only pointing out you know, that Jesus let the women be the first witnesses of his resurrection. Jewish women weren't allowed to be witnesses. The witness of the first resurrection, the women that went to the tomb and saw him there, were that was the that was the sign and that was the sign and qualification for the apostolic office was that you saw the resurrected Christ. The first women to see the first people to see Christ were women. They were the ones who reported it to the males. Eventually, they saw Christ. So, who are the first apostles? You know, when Matthias is chosen, he's chosen on the basis that he was one who had been there and saw Christ. Well, you know, you can kind of skip over those things and pretend like they don't exist, but there they are. Joseph Smith promises the Relief Society, I'm going to make you a kingdom of priestesses. But we don't follow through on the promise. The fact that the current leaders of the church don't follow through on the promise, they may have very good reasons for not doing it. But we were talking to people who knew this already, who were suffering from these lack, uh, this lack of fulfillment of promises, and we're trying to help them. And now you're saying what many people have said about us is that we created the problem. But we didn't create the problem any more than we created slavery or any of the other problems. We were just trying to help. So how's your state president taking this discussion? And what is it? Well, that's when he decides that Margaret is not a fit target for excommunication, that I'm much more worthy because I'm obstreperous, I'm rude, I contradict him all the time, and I call him Kerry instead of President Hines. And um, so he called another meeting with our Bishop Wilson Martin, who's a very good fellow. And Wilson was trying to mediate, and it didn't work out so well. And I, and uh, Kerry, uh, you know, he warned us. He said, if you give this, I told him I was going to speak on all is, all is Not Well in Zion, False Teachings of the True Church, was the name of the speech I was going to give in August of 1993 at Sunstone, just a few a week or so later, and I told him, and he said, well, if you give that speech, I'm going to excommunicate you. And I said, well, fine. And uh, I spoke, and uh, he never went after Margaret. Margaret was just too nice and sweet, and she is. She, she's just a nicer person than I am. But her, but her speech in August of 1993 was very bold, and I would have interpreted it as also pleading for excommunication or, or begging for it from the standpoint of doing what you know is going to lead to that end. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of like hiding Jews from the Nazis a little bit. Yeah, we're not going to obey. We're not going to do that thing because it's wrong. And, of course, people disagree. I mean, you know, I don't think it was wrong even now. But 
you know, the leaders of the church have to run the church, and they felt like we were a danger to it. That's how they looked at it. They never see themselves as quite the danger they see others, but, and maybe they're right. But, yes, we spoke boldly, and, but she didn't get excommunicated then. I, I, I was excommunicated. And what happened was that on the 12th of uh, September, uh, we got the home teachers come and deliver the summons, and uh, on the 19th, a week later, I was excommunicated. And this was at the same period, all in the September, let's see, I forget the order exactly, but I think it was um, Lynn and Whitesides and then maybe Avraham and then me and Maxine and then Levina and then Mike Quinn, Levina Anderson, Maxine Hanks. In that order that I first stated, that, that, that they were excommunicated all of that September. And it was a very, um, you know, impolitic thing for the uh, leadership of the church to do. I don't think it was the leadership. It was it really Boyd Packer was behind it. He went down and, I think, changed stake presidents for Avraham Gileadi, putting in somebody who would do it, would do the excommunication. And he knew that Kerry would follow his orders and excommunicate me. I don't know about how he managed the others, but it was staged. It was, a, it was staged. And it came out. And Steve Benson has a website that you can look up and read about all of this because he kept good records. And at that time, he was still in good favor with the leaders of the church. His grandfather, Ezra Taft Benson, was still president of the church, even though he was mostly incapacitated. Were you friends with Steve Benson? <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Not, not real close friends, but, you know, friends. So how did you feel when you received the summons and that you knew that it was really going to happen? Were you disappointed? Were you excited? Were you feeling like, I'm Galileo and I'm going to take the hit, but someday I'll be vindicated? Or were you like Les Miserables, where they say the, the, the masses will rise up and there'll be a revolution and we'll overthrow these tyrants that run us? You know, what, what were you feeling? Uh, at the time... I knew I was going to get the summons because he had told me, uh, and um, I, I didn't feel like I would be vindicated. Um, I I didn't I didn't know what was going to I didn't know they were going to excommunicate me. I knew they were going to try me, and um, I knew that my excommunication would depend on how much influence the state president exerted on the high council because they knew me, and I spoke to them frankly about my feelings, and uh, they did excommunicate me, although later I learned that some of them felt they had no choice, and I don't think a few of them felt I shouldn't be excommunicated, but they had no choice. So what was the actual trial like? Well, we were sitting at a table, unlike when Margaret later was excommunicated, where they just had a semicircle of chairs with her sitting there facing them, which was different. I actually sat in the high council room and at one end of the table with the state presidency at the other and the high councils on each side, high councilors. And what they did was, it took a while, they first went through an explanation of what should happen and then they divided the council between those who would see no injury was done to the church and those who would see no injury was done to me, although not much happened on that regard, uh, on that score. Then um, they um, handed out my speech. They had 
dittoed up. And the most recent one you had given? The one that all is not well in Zion, false teachings of the true church. And they handed that out, and then they had a tape of it, and they played it. <laughs> so, <laughs> The whole thing? Yeah, the whole thing. That's why it took so long. And were you feeling proud of the words you had spoken, or were you feeling well, embarrassed I, by them? I or? wasn't embarrassed. I wasn't proud. I, you know, you, it's not the same audience I had intended it for. <laughs> so there's a shift in rhetorical stance. But I stood by my words. You know, they asked me questions. They were only really worried about one section about where, I don't even remember this now very well. Had I thought, I should have looked it up in the speech. But there was one sentence that really bothered them. Some And it was really more of an intimation I had made that priesthood leaders sometimes are abusive. It wasn't really a very strong statement that they picked on, but they said, do you really believe that? And I said, well, you know, it can happen. And um, then, But they didn't argue with me about theology. They just wondered, you know, they just heard it. Then, and there was no, except for that one phrase... They really didn't question me about why I'd said what I did. They were a little offended that I would suggest that priesthood leaders would do something to hurtful. I said I, I didn't mean that it was advertent. I don't think priesthood leaders necessarily intend to hurt people, but it happens. But then they went on. And what they went on to do was to have Margaret come in and make a statement about my character. And I think Levina came in and made a statement about my character. Before she was excommunicated. Yeah. And then um, there was another member of the stake who came in. There were three. And then it was noon. I mean, it took all that time to get through all of those. Starting at what time? About six. It took until about eight just to get the, the speech handed out, the instructions given and listened to. So it was about eight o'clock. So In the morning? Yeah. It started at 6. I asked it to be started early because I'd prefer to get it over with and not have to be there till 3 in the morning. And then they, um, and I don't know, it just took a while. I mean, it takes a long time. Anybody who's been, like I am, a lawyer in court hearings, they know how long it can take to, and when you read the transcript of it, you think, gee, it took four hours to do this, but it does. It just takes time. They took a break or two and... And I should say that my wife was there, and all four daughters were with me. They were very small. My youngest daughter was Sarah, and she's um, she was like eight or nine. Let's see, they're listening, or they're outside. They were outside with a vigil. There was a whole bunch of people at a vigil that was held outside for me. What were the people doing in the vigil? Do you know? Well, they were having breakfast, and they were holding candles, and they were singing, and then they were sitting on the ground. But my daughter, Sarah, would not be with them. She insisted on being with me, and she wanted to come into the meeting with me. She was only about nine years old. What number is she? She's the youngest. Okay. So in 1993, she was born in 84, so she's nine. And, um, and I'm looking over here at a picture of them that people, the camera can't pick up. I guess that's them. That's them when they were little. They're all 20 years older than that now. But... Uh, Sarah would not, she wouldn't um, sit, be outside. She wanted to be in the council room with me, but they wouldn't let her, of course. And so she sat outside the door for the whole time. Mm. Kind of traumatic for young kids. It's uh, very traumatic. I mean, I don't think people understand how, because they can't intellectualize about what's happening and there's no 
there's no structure like you suggested, you know, did you feel proud? Did you think you were doing the right thing? Do you feel like Martin Luther? Do you feel like this? Do you feel like that? They don't have any of that. For them, it's just your dad and mom are being treated badly. And so it's stuck with them. They think of Mormons as more or less punishing. Although they know plenty of Mormons who aren't. They, you know, the church, they're just not interested. Why did you, why did you leave them home? Well, um... It's I guess not, you had I got a babysitter. It's because not Margaret like went. it's hard to get a babysitter at six in the morning. But also, we knew that their mom wasn't in the meeting, so their mom was able to take care of them. And it's not like we kept it from them. I suppose people will say, "Well, why did you?" Because that was the truth was that we were being tried for our membership. I'm not going to hide that from them. We we don't do that in our family. We don't hide information. <laughs> so I guess it just never occurred to me to do that. And um, and besides, they wanted to come. They 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 got up really early, which they hardly ever do, and they were wanting to come. But they were sad. But later, I mean, over the years, I mean, they saw their mother get excommunicated, their aunt got excommunicated, friends of ours got excommunicated, people they know are good people got excommunicated all for their ideas, not because they did some sin, but because they had ideas that were thought to be dangerous. So yes, they they were there. So from six, so six to noon. So six to noon. At noon, or right close to there, they broke and said they wanted to deliberate. And it might have been one o'clock, but I think it was like twelve, twelve thirty. And then they broke, and I think they went and had something to eat. And then they came back and deliberated for a couple of hours. And then about three o'clock, they called me back in with Margaret, and they announced that I'd been excommunicated. And were you just numb by that point? Were you dejected? Well, I was tired, and I knew that they were going to. When I when I went, I said that when uh, that I didn't know whether they would excommunicate me. I didn't know absolutely, but I was fairly certain because of the circumstances that I was going to get exed. So I, I kind of knew that that was going to be the. I mean, that was the probable result. So were you feeling charity towards them? Were you feeling anger? I didn't feel anger toward the council. I didn't even feel anger toward Boyd Packer or, or anybody. I just realized this is what they had to do. From their perspective, I was an apostate. I could understand why they thought that. And do you feel? Did you feel like you had God or Jesus's blessing? Did you Did you feel like it, with God you were okay? Yeah. As Mike Quinn put it once, he said, "I don't think the Holy Spirit of Promise sealed that." And I don't think, you know. I, now I, of course. Well, having lost my faith, I have no idea. Uh, I mean, we've been examining the past and not talking about how I am now, but I'm kind of putting myself into that frame of mind of the past. I mean, I thought that, um, you know, I what can I say? I, I put it this way. When, when the counselors who excommunicated me with Elder Boyd K. Packer, an apostle who was behind it, face their judgment. I think they can honestly say that they tried to help the church to do right by the church, to protect the church, and they felt that I was damaging the church or at least people in it or whatever they believe, and that they had to do what they had to do. I think they will speak with a clear conscience and that they will be fine. And I think when I, you know, if there is a judgment, if there's a life after death, if Jesus, as I hope, is the Christ and I'm judged by him and he asked me whether I thought what I was doing was what I had to do, what was right by my conscience. I'll be able to say yes, just like they can. It's just that we disagree. And I don't think that those kinds of disagreements can ever be really harmonized. 
I mean, I never said they weren't the apostles. I never said they didn't have the authority that comes directly from Christ through Joseph Smith. I never argued about their authority. I just argued about their competence. And from my perspective, I felt that they were neglecting not just cosmetic things. They were neglecting the infrastructure upon which the religion rests. And they were taking one of the world's great religions, the last religion to believe in an anthropomorphic god, and they were basically letting it fade away, abandoning its most difficult but yet most precious elements out of embarrassment. And because they might, because they, because they think like corporate men, they think about the next quarter. They're not thinking in the long term. So uh, there's a lot of people that I've run into when they lose their faith in Mormonism. Uh, they quickly lose their faith in Jesus and in God. Um, so, was there? Were you a firm believer in God, Jesus, and Joseph Smith, and in the Restoration, all the way up until your excommunication and after? So there was never this sort of cynical. I'm going to put on a, a mask of being a true believer, a mask of caring about this doctrine, but really I have this insidious desire to bring down. The, to bring down the, the columns and, and cave in the church. And this will just be the way that I do it, by masking myself as a believer and by emphasizing these doctrines that I really don't care about, but I'm going to make it sound like I do because the ends are really the thing I'm going for. Well, I don't wear masks. My daughters tell me that I have no public and private face. I have one face. And that I pretty much tell you the truth as I see it doesn't mean I don't change my mind. I do. And it doesn't mean that I'm arrogant and think I'm absolutely right, but I am convicted of what I've told you. Now, I could be persuaded. I have been persuaded to change my mind about things. My wife has caused me to change my mind many times. My children have. My friends have. Leaders of the church have. But I have not been able to change their mind because they will not hear my statements on their merits. They always are concerned about my authority. Where is your authority? This is what the Pharisees asked Jesus. I'm not making invidious comparisons. I'm only pointing out a story in the scripture where the Pharisees say, what is your authority? And he says, well, let me ask you this. By what authority did John the Baptist do what he did? And they said, oh dear, if we say that John had no authority, the people will stone us. But if we say he did have authority, then they'll wonder why we didn't follow him. And they said, we cannot tell, was the answer the Pharisees gave to Jesus. And his answer to them was, well, neither do I tell you by what authority I do these things. Ultimately, though, it's not about authority. I concede their authority. I just think that Mormonism cannot be reduced to the pablum that we get from them. I think that it's one thing to say young, young people and new converts need to be fed milk before meat, but there has to eventually be meat. There has to be a place for those who question. There has to be a place for those who doubt. And there has to be a place for those who suffer intellectually. And 
I don't believe that the leaders of the church have any right to make the extraordinary claims they make for themselves and not deliver. They cannot claim, as Boyd Packer did recently, you know, when somebody said, when, when somebody asked him a question about dating or sex or something, he said, why would anybody ask an 80-year-old man about sex? That's a very duplicitous, malevolent, bad thing for him to do. The reason they're asking him is because he is an apostle, because he's given advice from that apostolic office on this very subject, because he has told people how to live their lives. And the fact that he's 80 years old is irrelevant. If he doesn't know anything about sex now, he never did. And he shouldn't have been saying anything about it. He cannot claim to have the right to advise them, and then when they have a question, back off with that. That's duplicitous and malevolent. Did, did, were you hoping for a different effect from the excommunication? I wasn't hoping for any effect whatsoever. I was doing what I thought was right. I'm not a corporate man. I'm not making widgets. What do you think the effect was? Who knows? I have no idea. No, you don't know either. Nobody knows. The effect of this tape, what is it going to be? Am I speaking to people now? Is it remote posterity? Will it get destroyed? Will it have any effect whatsoever? Will anybody care about what I've ever thought in my life? I doubt it. But maybe. Besides, it isn't that. It has to do with, you know, I, I love Jesus Christ intensely. I love him now even though I know that he may be a fictional character. He may be entirely a figment Newton of the people who wrote the New Testament. I can't help myself. I love him anyway. And I can't help that. When I read his words, I think nobody ever spoke like this. If this wasn't the Messiah, he should have been. I don't want any other Messiah. But I can't tell you whether it's true or not. I hope it is. But if it isn't, we've been, you know probably deeply enriched if we believed in it anyway. Because what's the opposite? What's the alternative but despair? It's better. And I don't want to be, I don't want, and I'm no longer a part of a religion that diminishes him. Even, and I don't mean diminish, I mean, you can give lip service. Lord, they say, Lord, Lord, you know. And he says, yeah, but there are many who say, Lord, Lord, but they never knew me. And that's what I fear, is that they can talk about Jesus, but they don't trust him to do his own work. They set up rules and regulations and rewards and punishments and threats, and they make people feel like, you know, excommunication lurks in the shadows of the bushes of their home if they say the wrong thing, and it gives people that kind of a climate of fear develops. That is not from Jesus Christ. That can't be. That's just the church, like Brigham Young said, why do men create idols? Why do churches create idols? They don't do it to lead the people astray. They set up idols so that people don't slip further into sin. They think that the idols will help them from slipping further into sin, but in the end they become the reason why people slip into sin.